Welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Golden. And I'm Joanna Rowell. I'd like to start off the show today by talking about what we often take for granted. Mm, uh, eating, sleeping, although less so now that I have a baby. Walking, I, I, I rule at walking. Right, walking is a great example. It seems so easy and simple, but at the same time, it's not. For example, as you walk, you have many muscles in your legs moving synchronously. You have neurons in your spinal cord controlling those muscles, and then you have motor neurons in your cerebral cortex and cerebellum controlling those spinal cord neurons. Meanwhile, you're monitoring your environment with your eyes, and that visual information is processed and integrated to prevent you from tripping over rocks. Not to mention the fact that your legs were patterned during embryological development and evolved over geologic time. Thanks, Joanna. You convinced me that my daughter will never be able to walk. <laughs> well, my point is that we learn so much about the world and about ourselves by studying what we as humans take for granted. Walking is one example, and another is counting. Counting is something I'm also good at. One, two, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, three, four. Five. All right, doing the counting. Yeah, well, you know, I'm pretty good at counting, too. You are. Um, you know, it's actually pretty hard to find someone who isn't able to count. But what is the relationship between language and counting, and how do you even study that relationship? To learn about this, I spoke with University of Chicago postdoctorate fellow Alicia Spapen, who works with the renowned psychologist Susan Golden Meadow. Dr. Golden Meadow studies the cognitive basis of gesture and sign language in Alicia's studies, well, let's let her tell us. My more specific interest is in how we think about number um, and, and think about mathematical thought without language or with language. So how language shapes the way we think about number and math. So the way I've, I've studied this is in two ways. So one is to look at children who are developing uh, understanding of numbers. So as they're developing language, how does that affect the way they think about number. Um, and one is to look at people who don't have language and look at how they conceptualize number. And of course that's kind of a really unusual population because most people learn language just simply by being human uh, because everybody has language around them. So the people that we study to look at this question are Nicaraguan home signers. Wait, uh, what was that word? Home signer? What does that mean and how does it relate to language? Well, as Leisha mentioned, home signers are a very unusual population of people that actually do not have language. So here she is explaining that in a little bit more detail. So Nicaraguan home signers are, well, actually home signers it has nothing to do with them being Nicaraguan. Home signers are um, deaf, people who are born deaf, who don't have any access to any sign language for whatever reason. It might be um, political reasons, it might be economic reasons, it's usually economic reasons, so they don't have any way of getting to a school that will teach them the sign language or whatever. Um, in Nicaragua, it's often um, actually geographical reasons, so there's not that many schools that teach Nicaraguan sign language. If you live up in the mountains somewhere, there's no way for you to get to a, to a sign language school. You are born deaf, you can't learn Spanish because you're deaf you end up not learning a language. So it's, it's actually more common than people realize, but it's sort of this really crazy natural experiment. An unfortunate experiment. We don't actually like that these people exist because it turns out that learning language has serious consequences for the way that we think and the way that we conceive of the world. But it happens, and so these are people that we can then go study and look at how they conceive of number and how they think and how they um, reason about things like the concept exactly seven, which is something that 
we take for granted because we've been counting since we were, you know, teeny tiny little things and we're counting before we even knew what the words meant. But home signers never learn to count. So the question is, do they have a way of conceptualizing something like exactly seven? So home signers are people that have never had the opportunity to learn a language. Right. And, and this allowed Lisha and her colleagues to ask whether language is necessary to learn how to count or whether understanding exact numbers is something that's innate. So let's hear her thoughts on this. So one question is, is something like the concept of exact numbers, so exactly seven, so not approximately seven, mm-hmm. not, um, not sort of anything, but exactly seven. Um, is that something that is innate? That's possible. Um, is that something that's language dependent? Is that something that's something you can gain without language um, access? So that's one thing is that these Nicaraguan home signers we study, they're adults. So they've lived in the world for a long time. Um, and they've lived in actually the craziest part, the reason this is such a sort of interesting population for us who are interested in language per se and what language does to our cognition is they live in a completely numerate society. So they use money, they have jobs, they are completely integrated into society. So they're adults who have had a ton of sort of social and cultural experience. So if that's what you needed to gain some sort of, even if it weren't innate, if that's all you needed to gain some sort of understanding of exactly or some sort of concept of exactly seven, the home signers should have it. So they're kind of this crazy, you know, you would never ethically be allowed to do an experiment saying if you only take language away and you give them everything else, so you give them all the sort of, you know, cultural experience that you would otherwise have, how do they think and what kinds of concepts can they and can't they learn? Wait, so how do home signers live in society and hold down jobs without language? How do they communicate with others? Well, Alicia explained to me that home signers develop their own gesture system, which is called a home sign or a kitchen sign, and they use these to communicate. So let's hear her describe this gesture system. The reason we call them home signers is because they do communicate with the world around them. They do communicate with people around them. They have, they develop gesture systems called home signs Mm. to communicate with the hearing people around them. And they have, this is not my research, this is my colleague's research, um, they have a lot of linguistic properties, those home signs. So they look like sign languages in some ways, but they're not in all ways. Um, And so they do have some ways of sort of getting around in the world and communicating with the world and and picking up sort of the cultural uh, milieu or whatever you want to say. Um, But they don't have, what they aren't given is sort of a a conventionalized way of communicating about things. So they make up kind of their own gesture language. Exactly. And so one of the questions we went into uh, our research with, because we went in having no idea how they communicated about number, for example, was do they, do they, come up with a way to count. So that was a totally reasonable possibility. It's not, I mean, using your fingers to count is actually not, I mean, every hearing person does it, right? We sort of went in thinking, this might be something that they do and that they've created for themselves and that might be enough and they might know how to think about exactly seven because they know how to count. Right. Um, But it turns out that that's actually not, that you don't get that for free. So we've heard so far that home signers live in a numerate society and they can communicate using their own gesture systems. But does this mean they are able to count and to understand exact numbers? Lisha just told us that this is not the case. I wonder how she determined that. 
Well, Alicia and her colleagues performed some simple exercises with the home signers, and the results are really striking. So one of the things, we've done a whole bunch of research with them, looking at things like, if I lay out a, a set of chips, right? So if I put out, like, poker chips, like six poker chips, and then cover them after they've been allowed to look at them and do whatever they want with them, um, can they match exactly that number of chips? Or if I knock their fist a certain number of times, can they knock my fist an equal number of times? And what we see is that up to three, so for numbers one, two, and three, um, they can do it exactly. And this is something we know from previous research. All uh, humans and uh, lots of animals have this object tracking system that lets you um, track the identity of up to three entities in the world, so objects or events or actions or whatever. So they do that. They're able to do the task. They know what they're supposed to be doing. They, up to three, they can be exact. But after that, they start getting approximate. So like, I could knock the home signer's fist four times, for example, and he might knock my fist five times because he has no way of counting, right? He has no way of knowing how many times I actually knocked his fist. So um, it's things like that that we started sort of looking at was like, okay, so they have fingers, they use their fingers to talk about numbers sort of, but they don't actually know what they're saying, if that's like, if, if I can say it that way. So they know that they can use their fingers to talk about number, but they don't really have a way of clarifying exactly how seven is, is somehow different from eight, for example. So another task we did was we had pictures of hands. So um, the way you would gesture, if you were a hearing person, the way you would gesture numbers. So one finger for one, two fingers for two, three fingers for three, and so on, all the way up to 10. And we gave them these cards that had these pictures on them. And we asked them to put them in order, line them up in order. And what we found was that the home signers could do it up to about three. And after that, like, they didn't even put one-handed ones before two-handed ones. They just hmm. kind of had no idea why they would be ordered. And it's something, again, that we sort of take for granted that we've been counting one, two, three, four, five forever, right? We've been doing that before we knew what the words one, two, three, four, five meant. But home signers are put in this position where they learn to use their fingers to talk about numbers, sort of. But they never count. Nobody ever counts with them. They never put them in order. Mm. So they have to construct the order from those gestures. And that's actually not very straightforward. Even though it seems like you're just adding a finger every time. It seems like, why wouldn't you just take the one that has exactly one more finger every time and put it in, in order? Like, it seems like that should be really straightforward. But actually, that's a, an insight that is not at all straightforward that we sort of take for granted completely. So let me get this straight. Home signers who are normal in every way except that they are deaf and they don't have language are unable to recognize a concept of exact numbers beyond three. Does this mean that we need language in order to be able to count? That's what it looks like. I mean, you know, there's always more research that we need to do, but it yeah. seems like to understand the concept exactly four, exactly five, exactly six, we may need to have some sort of linguistic symbol to put on it. Mm. So what the home signers have is this one-to-one -one correspondence of objects and fingers. So when they're using their fingers to talk about objects, they'll actually put their fingers on the objects. So it's a way of representing exact number. I mean, it is 
you know, object, 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 if you're putting your finger on each one of those objects. Right. But you've never represented that whole set as a symbol. Right. You've only represented each individual. And what, what the word five does for you is it represents that whole set as a symbol. And it lets you sort of operate on that set in a way that the home signers aren't able to. So it like kind of sense. allows you to put a group of things into one single... Into a unit. Unit. Right. Exactly. And then, and then you're, you can order those. So once you have a symbol five, now you can have a symbol six that's exactly one more than that. Mm -hmm. But until you have a symbol five, you don't really... Why would you order it? You don't have anything to order, really. You just have a set of units that you've enumerated in some way. It's kind of, it's taken me years to sort of wrap my brain around it because I have a symbol five. I can't really unsymbolize it for myself, but the way the home signers conceptualize it is not five. It's really, you know, I, the way I often describe it is if they're looking at a set of fish, it's really fish, 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 fish. Right, right? instead of five fish. Exactly, right. Huh. Um, and you may actually have to be given a symbol system like a count list in your, a count list is just one, two, three, four, five. Right. Um, in your conventional language, in order to create a word like five, you're not just going to come up with that hmm. in your own system. So one thing that I don't really understand is if these people are unable to count, how do they get by in society? Isn't counting an essential skill necessary for si surviving in the world today? It's pretty hard to imagine what life would be like without being able to count. Leisha mentioned that the relatives of the home signers were always completely floored that the home signers couldn't do these counting tasks. Mm -hmm. So I asked Leisha, how important is counting really? It's not that important, right? In the real world, we approximate most of the time. Right. And they can approximate. They can approximate just fine. That's something that, again, pre-linguistic infants have. That's something animals have. That approximate number sense is something, you know, that doesn't, isn't language dependent at all. And these home signers show that. So, as I was saying, when you're matching chips or matching fist knocks, for example, if I were to knock their fist ten times, they would never knock my fist two times. They might knock my fist, or a hundred times, right? They might knock my fist nine times, or 11 times, or 12 times, right. but they would never knock my fist some crazy, unapproximate un number of times. They can approximate. Um, and that's good enough almost all the time. But it's not good enough if you're talking about actually doing math, or, right. you know... Exact number is still the basis of how we sort of constructed most of the math in the world, right? I mean, these people haven't gone to school. These people aren't, you know, educated in the way that, well, a lot of people in Nicaragua aren't educated in school. But to get around, this stuff is fine. They're fine. <laughs> um, so it is. It's sort of, you know, it, it's, it's that sort of dual thing where it's like, it doesn't really matter that much. These people are doing fine, but at the same time, it's sort of you know, their relatives were kind of all, the reason their relatives assumed that they had these concepts is because the relatives had these concepts. So when the home signer raises his hand and puts up five fingers, the relative reads that as five, not as one, 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 which is what the home signer is actually communicating. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this sort of almost no drive for the home signer to come up with a different symbol because it they've works. already communicated it exactly mm -hmm. so it's sort of it's this interesting place where more is getting communicated than the person has actually conceived of and you can only see that when you start really poking and prodding and figuring out that they have 
actually no idea what they've done when hmm. they put five fingers up. Except that there's exactly five objects, which is a lot. That's a lot. But it's not the same thing as having a word five. So we need the concept of exact numbers to understand mathematics, which is obviously incredibly important, but we don't really need it during our day-to-day lives. Right, unless you're a mathematician or an accountant or something like that. Yeah, but I'm curious as to why the home signers understand exact numbers up to three, but not beyond that. What's so special about one, two, and three? Well, there's a much bigger difference between, say, one and two versus nine and ten, but Leisha explained that it's actually a bit more than that. So there's a ratio difference for sure. We also have this, what we call, um, an ability to subitize small numbers. So subitizing means you don't have to count to see the number. So if you ever look at a set of three things, you don't have to count. You just know there are three there. You can just look at it and know it's three. If you look at a set of five things, if you actually analyze what you're doing to know it's five, you're either counting or you're breaking it up into chunks of three and two to know Mm -hmm. it's five. Um, But you can't actually look at a set of five and know it's five. Okay. So, so, and you can sort of test yourself on this. This I mean, try it. (laughs) Go try looking at a set of things. Like, you will, you will, I mean, we're very, and the more schooling you've had, easier, easier it is to chunk things into units of twos, threes, ones, twos, and threes that you can then add up and Mm -hmm. figure out how many things are there. But one, two, and three are this very special uh, series of sets for our brains that we can just assess them like that. We don't need, it's, it, you know, we can do it in parallel. We don't have to have any kind of other, um, uh, anything else at work. We can just do it. Um, and that's, and the home signers have that too. I mean, the home signers are not cognitively impaired in any way, except that they don't have language. So they show all the same signatures of being human that anybody else does. So they, you know, they can do all of the things that we expect them to be able to do by virtue of being cognitively normal adults. It's just where we think language has an impact that they, um, that they, they struggle. It's amazing that these people who have no language and as a result are unable to understand exact numbers can function in society. I mean, what about money? Money's a pretty fascinating aspect of this study and and Leisha and her colleagues actually looked into this a little bit. We pushed their understanding of money a bit. And they do understand it. They do understand. So Nicaraguan money also varies not just by, uh, it's different from American money in that the, um, the, the denominations are different in color and in size. So you don't have to know anything about number to start to figure out how, like, the orange one gets me more stuff than the red one, right? Like, you can kind of figure it out without number. Um, and I do think they rely on cues like that quite a bit. Uh, because when we started doing things like making exact change, for example, so, um, you know, if I give you a whole set of bills and I ask you to make exact change for a larger bill, it it mm. starts getting pretty hairy. And so the, the thing is, I think probably they could get cheated pretty easily if anybody realized right. that they could get cheated. But the fact is that you don't think that. You don't think, oh, this guy's deaf. I could cheat him. Like, that's not, <laughs> he doesn't understand about numbers. You know, like, that just doesn't... It doesn't work that way. And also, they're in small communities generally. Not all of them. Some of them live in bigger cities. But these people live with their families. They're in communities where there's going to be checks and balances. They're never going to be sort of out on their own without anybody sort of checking up on them. The people they're buying goods from 
know their whole family. It's sort of like it's not gonna it's not gonna happen yeah. where where they're gonna be in situations where somebody is really just gonna take advantage of them like that. So with the home signers we can study whether language is critical for being able to learn how to count. But how do people learn to count in the first place? Is there a great deal known about that? Learn to count has actually been pretty well studied and Alicia explained this to me as well. We're finding that in children, the same you see the same progression. So when kids are learning, like what learning to count, um, we know from lots of previous research. This is not my own research. Um, children learn to recite the count list, just like as a recitation, far before they know what the words mean. So they can say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then you can do fun game where you ask them to give you three things. I mean, parents do this all the time. Parents are like, oh, my kid knows all these numbers because he can count. But then you ask him to give you three and he has no idea what that word means. He mm. can just recite it because it's like eeny, meeny, miny, mo or E-B-C-D-E-F-G. Yeah. It's just something you can recite. And so kids go through this very slow progression of learning what the word one means, learning what the word two means in order. So they learn what the word one means. Six to nine months later, they learn what the word two means. And then like six months later, they learn what the word three means. It's a very, very slow process. And one of the very, very last things that they learn, much later than a lot of other things, is why the numbers are in order. So one of the things that the home signers seem to lack is this idea of what we call the successor function, which is for every n, there's an n plus one that comes after it, right? Yeah. It's very, very basic. It's how counting is different from the alphabet, right? Mm -hmm. It's the reason counting is principled in some way. Kids don't figure this out for a long time. They actually figure out a lot about number before they figure out the successor function and how counting really works and that it goes on forever. Home signers, that's again one, something that home signers seem to have a really hard time with. So it looks like that piece is the thing that you sort of need the most language input for. Like the kids need the most sort of push and 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 instruction almost or at least examples of it before they sort of get it. Hmm. And it's sort of like you see it in in the way the kids learn it and in the way that it happens when you don't when you take it away. So you sort of see it in both populations happening the same way, which is kind of interesting. And the home signers just have never gotten that information. At all. And so they never learn it. Um, and so it's sort of interesting that we keep seeing the same sort of patterns where the last things the children learn are the things that the home signers never learn. So it sort of seems like the things that need the most kind of input are the ones that the home signers are not going to have, which makes sense. So the last thing that children typically learn, with a lot of push from language and the educational system, is what home signers never learn. That's right. And it's interesting that we're talking about how children learn to count, because Leisha's actually no longer working with the home signers in Nicaragua, and instead is working with children in Chicago preschools. So let's hear what she's doing there. So given that this is um, how what it looks like when you get no input, no language input at all. Um, what the next question we had was, well, what happens when you have less input than sort of very well-educated, kids of very well-educated parents, for example, who give their kids tons and tons of language input and tons of counting input and lots of this kind of thing. Um, and so one of the things we've been doing is looking at um, children who are going to preschool in low socioeconomic status areas of Chicago. So socioeconomic status is just a, a 
a way of ranking both education and income of the, of the parents of these kids. Um, and it's a way of sort of looking at um, the kinds of input that these kids are going to be having. So mm. uh, previous research at the University of Chicago has shown that kids who come from what we call low SES homes, um, SES is socioeconomic status, um, have a lot less talk about number at home. Just it, we've done, there's a huge study that's been done at the University of Chicago looking from 14 months up to 58 months. Um, these kids, their parents just talk about number a lot less at home. Hmm. And so the question is, does that have an impact on the kinds of things that these kids learn at the rate at which these kids learn number and counting? The prediction would be from the home signers. If you think of it as sort of a spectrum, right? You sort of think of the home signers as one end of the spectrum. You think of kids who are getting tons of input, sort of high SES kind of, you know, professor's kids, let's say, <laughs> on the other end of the spectrum, what happens in the middle? What happens to all these kids who aren't getting no input? They're getting some input. They're learning language. They're learning to count. But they're not getting kind of crazy amounts of, let's count every time we eat Cheerios. Let's count every time anything happens that we could possibly count. We're going to count it. What happens in between? Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been looking at these low SES kids. Um, and the really interesting thing is it's all preliminary findings. We don't have anything in stone yet. Um, but what's really interesting is that these kids look a lot, they, they have a lot of the same strategies as home signers. So I don't want to say they look like home signers. They're certainly learning to count and mm -hmm. they're, they're speaking English and they're learning to count. Um, but they do things like the home signers. So they will put their fingers on objects to figure out how many objects are there which is something that actually high SES kids never do because they learn to count at like two and a half. Mm. And when I mean, when I say learn to count, I mean like they learn what counting actually is. Like they, there are kids at two and a half who have figured out the whole system. Um, some kids take longer than that. There's a huge range. Low SES kids tend to be about two years behind. By age four, they're about two years behind high SES kids in learning to count. So already right there, you see an input effect. There's a huge effect very, very early on. Um, but these kids compensate. They compensate in the ways that we see the home signers compensating. So they find other ways of getting into this exact number thing. So they use their fingers. They do these things that high SES kids never do because they don't have to. They sort of have a root in already mm. to the system, which is these number words. These low SES kids needed a root in. They haven't been given one or they haven't practiced that one enough to sort of be able to use it in the way that the high SES kids do. And so we actually see them doing the same thing that the home signers do, which is finding other ways in. It's so unfair that some children in Chicago are disadvantaged to the point that they get substantially behind in learning how to count. That's something Leisha and I talked about. It's interesting that these low-income kids are able to figure out how to teach themselves, but it's unfair that they're not getting the input that the other kids are getting. So I think Alicia's study really highlights both the amazing resourcefulness of the mm -hmm. human mind, but also how unjust our world is. Here's some of Alicia's thoughts on this. From a theory standpoint, it's very interesting because it bears out the predictions that the, that the home sign data make in terms of the kinds of things that you would expect these low SES kids to do. So they're behind in learning these, strat in learning these uh, concepts because they're not getting as much input. A and they're showing the same, the same strategies. Mm -hmm. But it's not okay. I mean, I don't even think, I, I definitely don't think it's okay that the home signers 
are yeah. stuck in this situation. They should be learning language. Learning language is a human right, in my opinion. The fact that they don't learn language is is not okay. It's they, tragic. Yeah, it's completely tragic. They We need to find a way to get everybody a way to learn a sign language. Um, but these, these low SES kids, it's sort of even more frustrating because they're... They're so close. They're so close. And, and it's a matter of getting them more good input. I definitely agree that learning language is a human right, and it's tragic that there are people in this world without that opportunity. Absolutely. It's really fascinating research, though. I think so, too. And I had a great time interviewing Leisha, and I'm so glad she was able to be on our show today. Mm -hmm. So, Leisha, if you're listening, thank you. Thank you. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. The Grok Science Radio Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to pursue a social interaction in email form, you can email us at science at groks.net. Thanks for listening to us today. And if you email us, tweet us, or post to us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For The Grok's Radio Show and Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, and Forrest Golden, who's right here. Hi. I'm Joanna Rowell.